It was well after 2 a.m. as we sat there on the bench. I was a 20-year-old college junior who still had homework to do. So given the time, I was understandably tired, but I wasn't just tired. I was frustrated. Because, you see, I was sitting on this bench with my girlfriend. And under normal circumstances, I would normally have been really, really happy. But you see, I had proposed marriage two weeks before, and she had said, maybe. And that maybe hung between us for 14 days, and it kept me at arm's length there at 2 a.m. on that bench. And so I'm tired, I still have homework to do, and this girl isn't quite ready to commit to me. I want to spend the rest of my life with her, and she's continuing to say, maybe. And so I just wanted to get back to my dorm. So I'm preparing to get up and leave when she suddenly says, ask me. Now, it was probably the foggy state of my brain in the moment, but this is what ran through my head. Ask you? Ask you what? Ask you why you won't commit? Ask why you won't say yes? Ask what's wrong with me that you don't want to spend the rest of your life with me? But by the grace of God, none of that anger spilled out of my lips. <laughs> Instead, I somehow calmly said, ask you what? And she looks at me and says the words I longed to hear. Ask me to marry you. And suddenly, all the frustration, all the anger, all the awkwardness of the moment just was flushed out of my tired brain and in rushed joy and bewilderment. I, I didn't know what to do. Do I get down on one knee? Do I like stand up and dance? Do I start whooping and hollering? Do, do I rush over and give her the biggest kiss she's ever gotten in her life? How in the world a nerdy little music major like me managed to convince the incredibly intelligent, super popular, ultra-talented Leanne Wojcikowski to marry me? I have no idea. I mean, just look at the picture. How that guy got that girl remains to be known. But what I know is on that night at 2 a.m. on that bench on the hundred stairs behind California dorm on the campus of John Brown University, my life changed forever. We've all had defining moments. A moment where when it happens, everything after it is going to change. It's going to be utterly different. Sometimes they're really happy, like getting engaged. You know, it, for some of you, it was the moment that you stood on a stage and you said, I do, to this person before God and witnesses. It's, it occurred in the hospital when you heard the cry of your firstborn child. It, it was when, on the other end of the phone, you heard your future boss saying, you've got the job, and the dream job was yours. Or, or, or maybe it was when you uh, got something off your bucket list. It, it was something that people said you would never be able to accomplish, but now your novel is published. You completed the marathon. You did it, and after that moment, you realized it's all going to be different from here on out. But unfortunately, there are also defining moments that aren't so happy, that aren't so positive. In fact, they can be just downright sad and tragic. It's when on the other end of the phone you hear that your parent or your spouse has unexpectedly died. It's when you hear the doctor say those words you never wanted to hear. It's cancer. It's when you as a preteen heard your parent say those soul-damaging words and they still reverberate in your head as an adult. 
Or it's when you're in a bad car accident and you're suddenly robbed of your mobility. After those moments, you realize nothing's going to be the same. After this moment, everything changes. Today we celebrate Easter. For many people, it's a celebration of spring. It's dressing up, it's putting on, you know, colors, it's candy, it's eggs, it's chocolate, it's family, it's food. And and those are good things to celebrate. But if you're a Christian, if you say you follow Jesus, then you would be celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And today, we're going to see how the resurrection, how Easter changes everything. But before we get there, I want you to go back in time with me. I want you to go back to the first century and go to the very first Easter, to that weekend. I want you to envision those disciples. They were probably a bunch of guys in their late teens, their early 20s, and they had been following Jesus around for three years. And man, could this Jesus preach. he, He taught unlike any of the other rabbis. Most Jewish rabbis would quote other rabbis, but Jesus He didn't quote other rabbis. He taught the scriptures like he had authority, almost as if he was the author. And not just his teaching. He he would go out and perform these miracles. Uh, They were incredible. Like how he walked on water. Or or, or just with a word, he calmed a storm. Or or how at the time, he took the little boy's lunch and and turned it into a meal for 5,000 people. They, They saw him make the blind to see and the lame to walk. They even watched him raise the dead. And so you combine his teaching and his miracles, and you begin to think this is a king. And he is going to reestablish Israel as a sovereign nation. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, and Israel will have peace once again. But then it all came crashing down. When Jesus hung on a cross, their dreams died with him. That when Jesus cried out, it is finished, the disciples felt their lives had finished. That when that that soldier took that spear and jabbed it into Jesus' side, it was their tears that poured out. They felt like life was done. It was over. The dream had died. That's why in just the few hours after the crucifixion, you find the disciples hiding. They're in a room. They've locked the door. They've got the curtains closed. They don't want anyone to see him because if the authorities could find and arrest and try and kill Jesus, what would they do to them? And so they're afraid. But more than just fear, they're bewildered. They're confused. They don't understand. As far as they could see, it's over. I mean, they're, they're trying to comfort each other, but Jesus is gone. That's why that Easter Sunday is so pivotal. That suddenly there's pounding on the door. The, the guys open it up and, and there are some women. They, they've just been out to the tomb to finish the preparation of Jesus's body, but they're like out of breath and they're saying something about some men or angels and, and how Jesus is alive and the body's not there. And in Jewish society, they didn't trust the testimony of women. And so Peter and John take off running. By the way, that's not an insult at women, right? But anyway, they, they take off running and they go to the tomb. And John's just a little bit faster than Peter, but he's scared to go in to see what he's going to see. And so he waits for Peter, and Peter comes in, walks into the tomb. Sure enough, he's not there. It's empty. So they make their way back to Jerusalem, and they come to the house. They knock on the door, and they come inside, and they lock it again. 
And they start telling him, here's what we saw. And all of a sudden, there's another knock on the door, and two more disciples come in. And they've just been out on this road to Emmaus. They've been walking with Jesus, and they didn't know it until Jesus revealed himself to them. And so they rush back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples, it's true, he's alive. And as they're standing there, beginning to celebrate, trying to figure out what's been going on, all of a sudden, Jesus appears. He didn't come through the door. He's just there. Uh, Imagine the shock, the, the astonishment. You'd be a little scared. Like, is this a ghost? Are we hallucinating? Because we saw him die, and yet now he's standing here. He didn't come through the door. How did he do that? Suddenly Jesus says, hey, guys got any food? And they give him a piece of fish, and he starts eating. And I can just imagine Jesus starts smiling as if to say, can a ghost do this? And suddenly all of the confusion, all of the fear, all of the doubt gets flushed out. And in rushes the surge of joy and excitement because Jesus is alive. And for those disciples, everything changed again. But we are here today because the resurrection did not just impact the first century. It continues to resonate through all centuries. We are not gathered today simply because Jesus changed the lives of a few disciples It's because his resurrection has continued to change lives throughout time. And it is my belief that if you will place your faith in this gospel message, in this crazy story of a guy dying on a cross, being buried and rising again from the dead, as ludicrous as it seems, but that if you put your faith in it, everything changes. And to help us see it, we're going to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you brought a Bible, open it up, 1 Corinthians 15. If you've got an app on your phone, go ahead. If you would like to use a paper copy and don't have one, just simply slip your hand into the air, and one of our ushers right now will just give you a copy. If you don't quite know where 1 Corinthians is, totally feel free to use the table of contents, use the cheat sheet that's on the screen. A lot of people in our church family are kind of new to the scriptures. They're not exactly sure exactly where all the books of the Bible are. And so it's okay for you to flip around and figure it out. You fit right in among us. But I need to let you know that we as a church family have been studying from 1 Corinthians for about the last year and a half. We've been taking it kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, just kind of doing little series through it. And we've taken breaks here and there for Christmas or other topics. But for the most part, we've been working through it. And we came to the end of chapter 13 in the month of February. So we took a break in March for another topic, and now we're kind of ready for 14. However, because of Easter, we're going to skip 14 for now, and we're going to jump into chapter 15. Because Peter is going to make it clear that Easter changes everything. And so because of the day, this feels appropriate for us to go to. So before we get into it, let me pray, and then we'll read. Well, Father, we have gathered today on Easter Sunday to remember the resurrection. And so I pray as we come to the scriptures that you would help us to see this story anew. Some of us, we have heard this story so many times. This is, in a sense, just another Sunday. And instead, I pray that today would be a glorious day. Even if we don't have the sun shining, even if it seems cloudy and rainy, that there would be a sun bursting forth in our hearts, and the light of your truth would come into our minds, come into our hearts, and we would leave realizing that Easter changes everything. And I pray for anyone here today that is skeptical, and they're doubting. And I pray, Father, that they would bring their questions to you, that they would look at this with a truly open mind, and that they might see your truth of what you have for them today, and see that you love them, and you want to change their life as well. So, Father, help us each to see what you have for us today. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, 1 Corinthians 15. This is written by a guy named Paul. And he begins in the first two verses saying this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, we are coming towards the end of the letter, all right? Chapter 15 comes right before chapter 16, which is, I know, a really profound thought that 15 comes before 16. You're thinking Riverwood has a brilliant pastor. All right, but anyway, chapter 16 is the last chapter of this letter. And so we're coming towards the end. And so it's really, really interesting that Paul would say, hey, I want to tell you about the gospel. Because as we've been seeing for the last year and a half, Paul has been teaching the gospel over and over and over and over. And, and this church in Corinth is a mess. They are, they are a problem church. When some people say, oh, we want to be a New Testament church, I'm just like, ah, I hope you don't want to be like the Corinthian church. Because they were a mess. And what Paul is doing is addressing all these issues. And he's saying, here's how the gospel applies to this. Here's how the gospel applies to this. Here's how the gospel applies to this. And so I find it interesting that Paul towards the end of his letter, says, hey, no, I want to remind you about the gospel. Why does he do this? Because the gospel is the absolute foundation for Christianity. You take away the gospel, you, you have no Christianity. You have no faith. And, and so he's saying, this is your foundation. So I've got to remind you yet again. And, and notice what he says about it. It's what he preached, so he taught it to them, but it's also that they received. There's a lot of people that will hear the gospel. Right now, on, on this Easter Sunday, there are people who go into church who rarely ever go to church. They, some people call them creasters. They go at Christmas and Easter. And so today's their day, and they're going to show up, and they're going to think, oh my goodness, does this pastor talk about anything else? I mean, he talked about the same thing last year. They know the story, and yet they haven't received it. They haven't truly believed it, placed their faith in it. He's saying to these guys, you not only heard it, you received it. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, you not only received it, you now stand in it. Like this is your foundation. This is your beginning point. But it's not just your beginning point. It's your ongoing point. Because they notice the active verb there, that you are being saved. That's why I like how Tim Keller puts it, that the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian faith. It's the A to Z of the Christian faith. It isn't just what gets you started with this and now you move on to deeper things. Like if you want to grow in Christianity, if you want to grow in your spiritual faith, it's through the gospel. You continue to grow through it. And notice it's active. It's because God is transforming you. If your faith is in Jesus, God is actively at work to transform you into the image of Jesus. And as he's transformed you into the image of Jesus, guess what? You begin to love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And my opinion is that the world could use a few more people that love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. This is the gospel. It's this ongoing story of God taking broken and imperfect people and restoring them into the perfect and complete image of Jesus. But he's going to make absolutely sure they know what this gospel is. Not only that they've received it or standing in it and are being saved by it, he's going to go back to the story yet again. So verse 3, 
For I delivered to you. In other words, I preached to you as of first importance. So this gospel is the most important thing that they could get. And it's which I also received. So in other words, he also heard it and received it, believed it, and it changed his life. And it's this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. I love that phrase there, in accordance with the scriptures. It means this was planned all along. God knew this was going to happen. It didn't just happen by chance. Jesus didn't just stumble into it. Like God ordained for this moment to happen. Why? Because God created mankind, but mankind had sinned, been separated from God. And so God goes and pays the penalty of sin on behalf of man. Because man couldn't do it himself. So God does it for him. Jesus comes to earth and dies our death. So he died according to the scriptures. The Old Testament had been prophesying this. If you want to have your mind just absolutely blown, go to the book of Isaiah. It's in the Old Testament. Go to chapter 53 and begin to read it. But read it in light of this whole entire Easter weekend. And then realize that those words were written 700 years before Jesus walked on the earth you suddenly see that, yeah, this was in accordance with the scriptures. God prophesied he knew it was going to take place because God loved mankind. He loved humanity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is what the scriptures have been saying in the Old Testament, and it's what the New Testament reveals. It really happened. But it's like Paul has to help his readers see this isn't just some story. Like, there were people who lived through it. And so he begins to give some eyewitness accounts. He starts that in verse 5. He says, And that he, being Jesus, appeared to Cephas. Now, Cephas is another name for Peter. If you go back to chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, you would see Paul addressing an issue that the Corinthians were facing. Some of them were saying, hey, I really like Apollos. I'm going to follow him. And others, I I like Paul. I'm going to follow him. And some people saying, no, I kind of like Peter. I like the way Peter puts it. So I'm going to follow Peter. And so he intentionally brings Peter into this conversation because some of them, I really like Peter. And Paul's saying, yeah, Peter, Cephas, he saw the risen Christ. But not only Cephas, also, Jesus appeared then to the 12. So all of the 12 disciples, the, these guys that were right around Jesus, and, and most of them were still alive. And so if you wanted, you could travel to Jerusalem, find some of these church fathers, and start asking them, tell me about Jesus. Nah, but, you know, if Jerusalem is just a little far away, maybe you could ask one of these people. Verse 7, I'm sorry, verse 6. Then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. And so it's like he's saying, hey, if, if you can't make it to Jerusalem and talk to the 12, there's 500 different people who saw him. Yeah, a few have already died, but most of them, still alive. You can go talk to him. This is a verifiable historical fact. Jesus died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. But then as if to add an exclamation point, he throws in another name. Verse 7. Then he, Jesus, appeared to James. See, James, at that time, was the leader of the church. He was kind of the, the point guy. He, he'd sort of replaced Peter. Not that Peter like, had sinned and got kicked out or anything. It's just that 
Peter, I mean, that Peter was fulfilling his role, but James assumed kind of this authority position, kind of like president, if you will, or, or kind of like lead elder. But James was also the brother of Jesus. And while Jesus was walking around on the earth before his death, James was not a follower. James thought his brother was just a little crazy. He's going around telling people that he's God, saying kind of nutso things like, yeah, I'm going to die, but don't worry, I can take up my life again. Yeah, those don't sound real sane. His brother's causing all this commotion, and James was a skeptic. And yet, Jesus not only died, but rose again, and James saw it. His brother was right. Maybe he's not just my brother. Maybe he really is the son of God. And he begins to follow his own brother and eventually assumes leadership of the church, leading it to some of its greatest expansion the world had ever seen. That was James. And if James wasn't enough, he adds on one more, then to all the apostles. There were so many people that had seen the resurrected Christ. You could not say, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus died. They stole his body. It's a concocted story. No, there were over 500 people who knew, who saw, and believed Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, according to the scriptures. They saw it, and they knew it, and it changed their lives. And Paul knows it changes lives, because now he begins to share his own story. Verse uh, 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. If you were to go back to the book of Acts, you would discover that Paul used to be known as Saul, Saul of Tarsus. And he was so zealous for the Jewish faith that he was actually going around trying to arrest, have tried, and even approving of the murder of anyone who claimed Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And he was so zealous about it, he actually procured letters to go up to another city, to Damascus, to get permission to go and do the same there. But it's on the way that suddenly, this Jesus that he thought had died and the body just stolen, suddenly appears to him on the road. And suddenly Saul realizes, I'm wrong. He really did live and he really did die. And suddenly Easter changed Paul too. And so instead of traveling around trying to convict people for being Jesus followers, he's now going around inviting people to become Jesus followers. And that's what took him to Corinth, to help them know this story, the resurrection of Jesus and how it changes everything. So verse 10, just to finish this out. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preached the gospel, and so you believed. So he's laying it out. This gospel, this Easter, this resurrection is absolutely crucial. But maybe this isn't enough. Maybe he's got to help them see it yet clearer. And this brings us to our point today, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? <laughs> but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching of this gospel is in vain, and your faith in this gospel is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, well, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And, and then those who also have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, they've perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. To sum those verses up, Paul is basically saying that without Easter, Christianity falls flat on its face. But with Easter, it is everything. How in the world can Paul go about saying this? Well, there are many religions in this world. Most of them started by teachers. They were eloquent with their words. Maybe they had a certain charisma about them. They, they saw life a certain way, and they began to put together these maxims and these mantras. And, and other people heard them and thought, that makes sense. And they began to adhere themselves to these. And so they started setting these rules of this is what it means to do life. And they began to follow this, and this religion forms. But then the teacher, the leader, dies. And so they honor him, and they continue to uphold his teaching, but he's dead. Now, Jesus, like a good teacher, was teaching all sorts of maxims, ideas, thoughts about the kingdom of God, what it meant to truly be Jewish. But he would kind of slip in these really odd things, such as, I'm going to die, but no one can take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down willingly, but I also have authority to take it back up. Now, if you've ever attended a funeral, you rarely sit there, look at the casket up front, and expect the person to pop up and go, oh, wow, what a nap. No, brain activity has ceased, heart has stopped, the lungs are not taken in the air, they are dead. It's over, it's done. We don't expect the dead to rise again. So for Jesus to say, yeah, I'm going to die, the brain activity will stop, my heart will cease, I won't be breathing any longer, but in the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of a whale for three days, I'm going to come out of the earth three days later. I will take up my own life. And at that point, I think some people went, hmm, I don't think this guy's all together. When Leanne and I were working at a missionary kid school in Venezuela, we, we taught classes, we led the youth group, but one of the things I also did was I led the worship on Sundays at our English-speaking church. I play piano and I would occasionally get some other staff members or students, uh, high school students, to come and play with us. And we would lead then music on Sunday mornings in our English-speaking church there on the school campus. And so one particular Thursday night at practice, uh, I've got, I remember Ashley on guitar, and I think I had a couple of singers, and I don't quite remember if I had anyone else with me, but we're, we're running through the music. And all of a sudden, an older Venezuelan gentleman that we had never seen before walks into the room where we're practicing. And this was odd because usually once it got dark, they would release the dogs. You, you see, where we were at in Venezuela, we were in Rubio, which is near Tachitas, which is in the Tachitas state, which is right next to Colombia. And at that time, some of these guerrilla army groups decided a great way to fund their operation was to kidnap any Americans they could find and try to ransom them for money. And it was proving quite successful. And so we had a big old fence around our school. We had some safety precautions in place just so we wouldn't end up as fodder for gorillas. Not gorillas, gorillas, I think you know what I mean. Uh, so usually the dogs were let out at night. Well, on this particular night, they hadn't been let out yet. And this older Venezuelan gentleman had heard our music and just walked in through the gate and just came up to our auditorium where we're playing 
and walks in. And he's just standing there, and he's got this goofy smile on his face, and he's just kind of bopping along, and we, we keep playing our song. And when it ends, he begins to talk. Now, I had four years of Spanish in high school, and I loved Mr. Keggy, but I did not learn enough Spanish. All right, all I could say is that mantra from the Princess Bride, Hola, mi nombre es Inigo Montoya, Matasia, mi padre, paparate, o morir. That's it, four years right there. And so I can't understand what this gentleman is saying. Thankfully, Ashley is there. She's fluent. And so she starts talking with him. And all of a sudden she says, oh my. What? What did he say? She looks at me and says, he would like to thank us for playing him this music because he's Jesus. And my reaction was the same as Ashley's. And your reaction would probably be the same as Ashley's, to kind of roll your eyes and go, oh my. And it was clear as the evening progressed that this gentleman wasn't quite all there. But if he suddenly said, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again from the dead after three days, I'd probably say, be thinking, okay, you are going to get committed to a hospital. But then if you pulled it off, I might actually have to change my mind. This would cause me to rethink. This is how you could get James the brother to suddenly believe his brother really is the Messiah, is really God in the flesh, who died for sins but rose again from the dead. This is what separates Jesus from just other good teachers. Because good teachers don't say, I'm going to die. Don't worry, I'll rise again from the dead. But when they actually do it, you realize he's not just a good teacher, he's actually God. You see, without Easter, Jesus is crazy. But with Easter, he's God. Without Easter, you are separated from God. But with Easter, you suddenly can be connected to him. Without Easter, you just have another religion. But with Easter, you now can have relationship. Without Easter, you are dead in your sins. With Easter, you can now be spiritually alive. Without Easter, nothing changes. But with Easter, everything changes. This is how crucial the resurrection is. Easter changes everything. I think, though, inherently we know that Easter changes everything. I think that's why some of us are scared of it. I remember sitting at lunch with Zach. We're at Alan Irene's Barbecue in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I've got the number four spicy barbecue sauce on it. It's got lots of pepper in it. It's really, really good. But as I'm eating it, I'm also getting peppered with questions because Zach was not a follower of Jesus yet. If you heard the message four weeks ago, this is Zach from when I shared the story of Tim and Zach. And Zach is just peppering me with questions about theology, about science. I mean, he's asking me things. I mean, he's a smart dude. And he's asking me things that I had to be honest and say, I don't fully know the answer to that. But then during the course of the conversation, it took an interesting turn. Instead of just asking me questions, he began to explain some dilemmas. Because he said, if I say yes to following Jesus, then there are going to have to be some things that change. There were some things at work that would have to change. There were some things in his personal life that would have to change. And he realized that saying yes to Jesus would mean this has to change. Because if I don't follow Jesus, I can kind of do what I want. But if I follow Jesus, I have to let him be in charge. He's in control. And Zach is exactly right. 
Because you see, back in Genesis chapter 2, or chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image. So, so as this triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is making mankind, he puts on him his image. But then that image gets marred, it gets distorted, it, it kind of gets blurred through sin. And so sin like stole us away from God. And yet Jesus goes and pays the price, pays the penalty that we should have paid for our sin to redeem us, to bring us back into God. And so it means you've been created by God and you've now been purchased by God. You are doubly his. Therefore, your life is not your own. You belong to God. And this is why you cannot just give him Sundays. He wants every day. You can't just give him some cursory prayers. He wants your breath. He wants your life. But this is not a threat. It's an invitation because it actually means freedom. Because you see, as long as you try to hold on to the leadership of your life, you're actually in a prison. His invitation is to free you, but it means surrender. So if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, your next step is to surrender. It's to simply say, God, I realize this gospel is true. That Jesus, according to the scriptures, died. He was buried and he rose again, according to the scriptures, to change everything. And so I surrender. Just as Jesus, you gave your life for me, I now give my life to follow you. And you don't follow the teachings of just some dead teacher. You follow a risen Savior. So your next step is to simply say, yes, God, I will follow you. That you would hear this gospel and you would receive it. You'd place your faith in it. If you're here today, and as I say these words, it's pricking something in your heart. On that connection card that's in the bulletin, uh, on the back of it, it just says, today I begin to follow Jesus. Would you mark that? At Riverwood, we are not looking to just make converts. We don't check those boxes and then rack up numbers of how many converts we make. What we want to do is help you follow Jesus. Because as I've already said, what this world needs is people who love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And that is a process. We want to help you follow him. And we want to celebrate his work in you. So checking that box isn't for us to just celebrate. Checking that box means we want to help you begin a journey of following him. So would you please mark that? Many of you, though, are here today because you follow Jesus. You you know this resurrection is true. And and so you've come to celebrate. So what's your next step? I believe it's the same thing. I believe it is to surrender. Because I will be the first to confess that I have given my life over to this thing. And yet, I don't do it perfectly. There are still areas in my life where I need to continue to let Jesus have more leadership, more control And so I just want to ask you, are there areas in your life where you're not letting Jesus rule? Where you're not showing that Easter changes everything? Maybe it's the way you talk at work. You hang out with your coworkers. Maybe it's the way you treat your spouse at home or or treat your kids. Maybe it's the things that you're doing on your computer. Maybe it's the way you're using your time. Is there an area of your life that you are not fully surrendering On this Easter, would you let the light of the gospel shine in? Would you receive it and confess this and let God have it all? Because he wants to give you 
freedom. When you hang on to these areas, that's when the frustration comes. That's when the doubt comes. That's when the struggle comes. But if you will open up and surrender, all of that can be flushed out and you can have that renewal again and have the gospel be fresh in the center of your life. Don't just make it something you receive. Don't just let it be something you stand on. Let it be something that is actively saving you and transforming you into the image of Jesus. Because Easter changes everything. When you surrender, your identity changes, your eternity changes, your parenting changes, your marriage changes, your future changes, your purpose changes, everything changes because of what Jesus did on the cross and from the grave. So Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us today to surrender. I pray right now for the person that's doubting, that's skeptical, they don't believe the words I've said, and yet there may be a wrestling going on. Holy Spirit, would you help them with this wrestle? Would you help them to come to a place to see that losing to you is actually winning and that they would let you have their life, that they would receive this gospel today and let it become their foundation and they would begin to not only stand in it, but allow you to actively transform them, to be saving them so that they will begin to be restored into the image of Jesus and that they could go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. Lord, I pray for anyone here that, that does know you, but, but they've been holding on to sin, the sin that so easily entangles that today they would let this gospel message penetrate yet again their heart and their mind, and that this would be a glorious Easter because you rose from the dead and everything changes. We don't go into our marriages for what we can get from it. It's now something we can give into it, that we would love our spouses like Jesus would love them, that, that we don't look at our kids as just to make us look good, but as someone that we can invest in. We don't see work or school as just a place to make money or to get a degree, but in, instead these are places that we go into to be a blessing and to live like Jesus lived. God, I want to see each and every person in this room be a change agent, a change agent for good, that they would go and bless others. But it starts by us having an identity centered in Jesus. So Father, help us now as we wrestle. Help us now as we surrender. Help us now as we worship. Help us now as we remember. Father, would you change us? Because we know, we believe that Easter changes everything. And we want to see that in our everyday lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.